Hello, and welcome to the Media Copilot. It's a podcast and newsletter all about how generative AI is changing the media, journalism, and the news. I'm Pete Paschal, longtime tech journalist and founder of the Media Copilot. And on this podcast, I'm excited to bring you fascinating conversations with fellow journalists, media executives, and the people helping build the AI-driven newsrooms of the future. And I am thrilled today to welcome to the podcast, David Caswell. David has been working with machine learning and AI for well over a decade, leading news product innovation at the BBC, Tribune Publishing, and Yahoo. He's now a consultant, builder, and researcher focused on AI and news and computational journalism. I can't think of anyone better qualified to talk to about AI and news than this man. Welcome to the Media Copilot, David. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Well, sir, I just really want to get right into it. So last fall, you wrote an article called AI and News, What's Next? And I would describe this article as as really definitive. By the way, I'll I'll link this in the show notes uh, for anyone curious. But what you did, and this was, I think, last September, you, you really laid out like what I would describe as essentially a manual for any news organization to navigate this brave new world where generative AI is existing in a universe alongside newsrooms. So um, can you articulate what you were trying to achieve with that piece and what the subsequent feedback you've gotten since it was published? Sure. Um, yeah. You know, what, what I was trying to do was to uh, to take a lot of the kind of the framework that I developed uh, around how to think about AI and news um, uh, over the years. And, and, you know, that, that goes back, uh, 10 years or more to my time at Yahoo. Um, but a lot of it is also, um, you know, kind of ways I've developed of thinking about this over the last year, uh, year and a half as, uh, chat GPT and other AI tools have really, uh, uh, kind of dominated our conversation. Um, and, and also, um, as I've interacted with newsrooms, uh, and, and leaders in newsrooms around how to apply these tools and what people were doing uh, in different size newsrooms in different ways. And so what the article was trying to do essentially is kind of capture that. I kind of wrote it for myself, really, uh, mm-hmm. to, to, to get down on paper um, uh, this, this kind of framework for how, how I was thinking about these things. Um, and so a lot of it uh, deals with, um, with the options that are available uh, to newsrooms. Um, uh, the options in terms of, of different strategies, uh, options in terms of specific projects to begin uh, a, 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 an AI journey uh, in news, um, options in terms of the infrastructure uh, that's um, uh, both uh, increasingly kind of required uh, to take advantage of these tools, um, options in terms of organizational um, uh, structure and so on. Uh, and and that that's what the article does. So it's it's a uh, it's basically like a guide, I guess, to sort of the space of possibility at this stage. Um, I think already, um, you know, we're now about six months later. I think it's already a little dated. Uh, mm, but, I was uh, just going to ask. But at the time, it's uh, th- that that was kind of you know where I'd got to and how to think about these tools. So you mentioned it's a little dated. That was actually going to be my my follow up question. So what needs updating? What has changed since you wrote that piece? Well, I, I think there's there's a little bit of nuance here. So um, the, the the main thing that's changed 
since I, I wrote that piece, and, and I allude to this a little bit in the, in the piece, um, is that I think people are becoming more aware that uh, AI is not just about um, making the existing workflows uh, and products and um, you know sort of competitive situation uh, of news organizations uh, more efficient. Uh, I, that, that's a logical place to start. That's what a lot of that article um, uh, talks about. Uh, but I think what's happening is bigger than that and broader than that, and and the implications are deeper than that. Um, and I I think that's one of the things that's that you know that conversation around well what you know what is going to be fundamentally different about the information ecosystem and about you know, the place of journalism in that ecosystem um, and and how is that going to kind of shape uh, how journalism develops with you know generative search conversational uh, news experiences, um, you know, the ability of of basically anybody to access these media creating tools. Um, when you kind of bring all that together, you know, what does the information environment in which all that exists, what does that look like? And, um, you know, and, and what's news, what, what's the place of news in that? So I, I think that's a much bigger part of the conversation now. So it's a bigger part of the work that I'm doing uh, uh, in, in various ways is trying to kind of, you know, figure that out and kind of plot for that. And then the other, the other aspect is, is, you know, what are the strategies that news organizations can pursue that take advantage of those kind of, you know, near term efficiency based things, the things that are very easy to understand, the very tactical kind of, um, you know, the quote unquote, low hanging fruit of, of AI. How do you develop a strategy that takes advantage of those, but also gives you a path to, um, you know the flexibility and the options that you need as an organization to to, to deal with this longer term change. Um, yeah, I, I like what you said there about the various things with generative search and the the wide accessibility of AI, and that the simply applying AI to our current uh, news environment or how things have always been done um, is is just such an inadequate vision. So clearly, with all, the whole ecosystem changing, and I want to key in on one of those things, which is the sort of democratization that everyone has this technology now. And it seems like there is a, a corollary with the internet where suddenly everyone could be their own journalist and bloggers sort of rose to fame. And then social media was a whole different thing. Now with generative AI, like I think the thing, the example I would point to that seem, comes out uh, most prominently in my mind for some reason is remember the whole SEO heist guy that they, this was a thing last fall. And I, I was able, he was, someone was able to basically create a website with tons and tons of articles created by generative, uh, to, uh, generative AI to essentially create a media site overnight and that could steal that traffic from quote unquote real media sites, supposedly. And that's just one example of, of how this environment is, is changing where, you know, you, yeah, journalists used to have to contend with bloggers and influencers, but now they have to contend with everyone who is savvy about this technology and you know leveraging it in a way that can just completely upend the the formula you know like the 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 audience and and how everything works i don't know like how do you i'm not sure what my question is here like how do we deal with that no i, I mean it's it's i think it's it's getting to the heart of of you know one of the the fundamental challenges that news organizations are going to face i mean the, you know what these tools do and i'm talking mostly about large language models here what these tools do is they separate 
the the semantic information, the news information, the the sort of the the facts, the arguments, the um, you know the tone, all of that stuff. They separate that from the way that that's communicated. Uh, and and so it used to be that these things were bound together, and they were bound in an article or in a podcast or in a in a video, whatever it was. But now they're not. And so the ability, like in a simple way, to just paraphrase an article uh, is new. Right. So this is kind of what you're talking about with the SEO, uh, the SEO bro. Um, uh, you know, paraphrasing. Um, you know, lo- lo- looking at what somebody's doing, stealing the information through paraphrasing automatically, and then and then kind of doing things with with that to get traffic. But it goes so much further than this. I mean, if you look at generative search, for example, um, you know, Google's generative search experience is a good one. You know, these are essentially doing the same thing, but they're not doing right. it with a single article. They're 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 taking a question, you know, some kind of search question, and they're they're extracting information from multiple articles or even multiple articles and multiple videos, and then they're bringing that information into a very very focused uh, response to that to that question. Um, the same thing is true with conversational interfaces. You know, you might have a, um, a, a an interaction with ChatGPT in in text, uh, or you might even have it in voice. There's there's tools from Inflection uh, AI, for example, uh, that that let you do this partially in voice. Um, you know, that conversation is being informed by documents, lots of different, you know, text documents and video documents and whatever the what, what, whatever the sources are, and that's all coming together to this experience. And so all of these examples, the fundamental thing they're doing is they're separating the information from the way that is created. The, 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 the act or the artifact of communicating the information is a lot less valuable now because we have machines that can do it. But the information itself, uh, that's still as valuable as it ever was. Mm. How do you protect it is the question I think we're all going to be, or how do you get... Um, paid for producing it, I think is the question we're all going to be struggling with for a while. Yeah. And it's definitely ongoing. So I think that naturally sort of leads to what I wanted to get into with you, which is, I think what you're getting at is the heart of the lawsuit that the New York Times has laid against OpenAI um, with this idea of a transformative uh, take on whatever the information they have and sort of serving them up in a different way. Um, but I mean, that, that is ultimately, I feel like what, what has happened here is for the longest time, there seemed to be a de facto agreement between big tech platforms and the media, which is to say, okay, you can index our content and we will get traffic in return that serves our business model. And that, you know, that has not turned out exactly hunky dory for the media, but that was essentially it. And now it looks like with generative search, the second part of that, getting the traffic, is now gone, right? And so, like, they're kind of reneging on that. So we need a new model. And what seems to be emerging with some of the deals that OpenAI is making, oh, we'll just, we'll pay you, essentially not to sue us for doing this transformative thing with your content. And the New York Times uh, is, is you know, the one sort of standing up saying, eh, I, I don't, either I don't like the deal or I don't like that whole idea. And I just really would love to get sort of your take on it. Like, what how important is this uh, to get a resolution in this lawsuit and and sort of ultimately whatever happens with it, what do you think, uh, how do you think this shakes out? Well, in, in general, um, you know, I, I think this sort of collapse in referral traffic that's happening 
I, I think that's happening because of reasons other than AI. It's, it, it you know, right. began earlier than the whole chat GPT moment. Generative search is a relatively small portion of, of search right now. So I think this was going to happen, this kind of post-social or post-referral um, um, uh, situation was going to happen anyways. Uh, so that that's worth keeping in mind. And then you have, you know, the, the potential of generative search, conversational interfaces and so on to, you know, to make that vastly, vastly worse, although it's already pretty bad. Um, in terms of, of kind of how this plays out in the New York Times lawsuit, you know, in reading through that complaint uh, from the New York Times, um, I, I think they describe it uh, quite well. They, I, I kind of interpret that as having two rather separate arguments for two rather separate audiences. The very narrow legal argument they have, uh, w- which is essentially that you can you can recover the verbatim text of a of an article from inside right. of uh, ChatGPT. I think that's a very weak argument. I think that's a very difficult thing to do. I think it only works for a tiny number of articles, and the reason it works for the, those articles is because they've already been widely distributed on the internet. And therefore, they're they're overrepresented in the in mm-hmm. the training data. Um, so I m- my take, you know, again, I'm not a I'm not a a lawyer in this, right. but my take is Big that cabin. that's a <laughs> it's a relatively weak argument, I think. Um, and there's there's been some very deliberate work that's been done in the past. Um, Nick Diakopoulos, for example, uh, who's a who's a a researcher at Northwestern, has done a bunch of work on this back in August or September, well before the lawsuit, uh, to show how difficult it is to um, uh, to, uh, to to pull the verbatim text out. But there's a second argument in that complaint, and the arg- that, that's a much better argument. I don't think it's a legal argument. I think it's a it's a it, it's a it's a laying out of the risk that that, we're, that, that news organizations are facing uh, due to precisely this this challenge, which is that well, if the information, you know if you can't copyright facts and you can just sort of strip that information out um, and reuse it and remix it, um, you know, without some kind of financial transaction, then where does that leave us in terms of paying journalists? Um, and, and I think they do the, the industry, um, you know, I, I think that's the real concern, frankly. Yeah. How do you incentivize the gathering of the facts? Exactly. And, and so uh, that, uh, that I think is, is, is what they're kind of laying out there. Um, you know, they may get some kind of a settlement from OpenAI as Associate Press have done and as Axel Springer have done. But I think it, you know, those kind of deals are probably not going to be open to, uh, to most news organizations. Um, mm. uh, yeah, like, I, I always kind of wonder what happens to the little guy as these big titans, whether it's the New York Times or News Corporation or whomever, right? Like the Guardian, et cetera. Like someone even like myself, right? I'm just a Substacker, and I guess I'm sort of at the mercy of whatever Substack does, and uh, or even just the smaller newsrooms that are already struggling. How do they? I, I, yeah. I think there's another dynamic going on here with with generative AI or large language models in that, you know, because you know you, you look at social or 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 search, and they deal with documents, they deal with links to documents, links to articles, links to videos, and so on. But what what the large language model needs is not documents; it's facts, right? It's information, mm. it's semantic information, and you don't need lots and lots of semantic information, like, you know, duplicated semantic information, you, you just need to get uh, some understanding of what that situation is, which you can do from a relatively small number of relatively high quality news organizations. So there might be some model that emerges for maybe local reporting, 
or specialty reporting in in, in niche areas. Mm. Um, but by and large, you know this era, this this era where you have eight hundred people in Iowa, uh, you know, following the, um, the 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 primaries and the caucuses there, you know, that era makes no sense in a language model because you don't need eight hundred documents; you only need one. You know. Cool. Switching tracks a little bit. So, so to another thing that's happened since you published your piece, um, there was the, the whole debacle with Sports Illustrated, which was kind of the latest, but I would say sort of probably the most prominent and perhaps the most definitive in terms of a long line of using generative technology uh, to scale up content. Now, I should qualify here. They the people who sort of submitted that copy to them, which was a third party, have have been on record saying they did they they claim that the content wasn't uh, wasn't actually AI generated, although the profiles of the authors were. Again, draw your own conclusions. I think from from a cursory look at them, it's it's kind of hard to believe they're done by humans. But anyway, I still count this as uh, a sort of an incident of where uh, we we term it here at the Media Copilot the the gray slime era of content. And, uh, you know, it, I, I wrote a piece that was sort of essentially that the AI is coming from inside the house, which is to say, oh, if you're a bigger organization with syndication deals and freelancers and all this, you, you kind of really need to account for this in whatever your strategy is. Um, but I, I would ask you, you know, what, what, what do you think the lesson is here, particularly thinking about, yes, journalism we you know we we certainly want to preserve the human part of it and i think everyone agrees it's essential at this point but there's a greater world of content where there's just going to be this kind of gray slime coming from uh other sort of less uh sites that 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 le- care less about the human element and more about the simply putting out content at scale um so as as that sort of grows in this ecosystem like what what are the lessons from this, the early era of trying to do generative content at some sort of scale within newsrooms, other than don't do that. <laughs> well, you know, j- just in the on the don't do that side, you know, I, I think it's worthwhile thinking about uh, the use of LLMs in newsrooms in terms of two very different kinds of tasks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, one kind of task uh, is 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 a task that uh, just involves language, you know, so rewriting summarizing, um, you know, optimizing mm-hmm. for SEO, you know, headline generation, copy editing, all of these kind of things are basically tasks that operate purely on language. They don't rely on anything from the model itself. They right. just use some kind of source document and they do something linguistically with it. I think those are, are very um, proper and useful uh, early tasks, relatively low risk tasks uh, to use uh, these tools for. There's a whole other kind of task, uh, which the term I use is a knowledge task. And that's right. a task where you're asking the model to bring its own knowledge, you know, to, from inside its training data or, or wherever it happens to be. And that's a much more problematic task because um, the risk of hallucination is much greater. It, it's not, there, there's still a risk of hallucination in language tasks, but it's much smaller um, mm-hmm. and, and it's much easier to edit. Uh, whereas in knowledge tasks, you're dependent on a lot of things. You're dependent on the quality of the information that the language model has and its training. All of this stuff is is in there, and that's very risky. And mm-hmm. I think what you've seen in these early in, the, in these, uh, as you say, these gray slime uh, examples, um, it's essentially uh, knowledge tasks. And, and a big one in right. when, but a year ago was CNET, uh, where they had right, they had, yeah, yeah. had had articles um, 
that were written from scratch by these tools. There's a, there's a few other examples. Um, I, I think those in terms of sort of familiar brands like Sports Illustrated or, or CNET, those are essentially um, uh, digitally native organizations. I mean, Sports, Sports Illustrated isn't, but, but they're mostly digitally native organizations that are um, kind of on the ropes because yeah. of the, the collapse in advertising and, and, and referrals. And they're basically casting around for anything that they can do to, 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 to stay afloat. And so, you know, I, I have a little bit of sympathy. I mean, they're, they're big catastrophic mistakes, uh, but I have a little sympathy for, for why they're, they're trying to, to do that. Um, and, uh, and they are providing lessons uh, for, for the news industry generally. I, I think in, in the broader sense, you know, n- not just news organizations using these tools for knowledge tasks to write articles and so on, but everybody, you know, the, the whole uh, ecosystem producing uh, content. Um, I, I think the question there is actually not so much about the production as about the filters and the, the, the role of, of, of recommender systems and curation systems and so mm. on that put this content in front of audiences. And, and the reason that's important is because, you know, all of our experience of media, I think these days is already full. Um, you know, every waking minute that we have when we're not sort of forced to do something else is spent consuming media. Every mm. little interstitial moment, um, you know, every, 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 you know, portion of our day is, is set up for consuming media. So if you've already got an infinity of media, basically, and 24 hours a day to consume it, then if you add another infinity on top of that from generative AI, hmm. it doesn't really make that much of a difference um, unless it's got a quality or a, a capacity to get through the filters. And so I think the filters are where the action is in terms of the gray slime. If, if the gray slime or, or if, if AI generated content is valuable and if it's valuable enough to get through the filters, mm-hmm. well, then maybe that's okay. Um, I, I don't think it is generally at the moment, yeah. <laughs> but at some point in the future, uh, that might be fine, but it's the filters that make that yeah. determination, right? If, if you're getting slime through your filter, that's a filter problem. And, and this like is yeah. the, the recommendation uh, systems are at the heart of that. That's good. I like that because it's kind of a, a semi a semi optimistic take on that. I would think, which is that the the filters can potentially still save us. Although one of our primary filters is Google, and I feel like Google has such an ambivalence here with regard to needing to serve up valuable content to people who use its search, but also being a player in the whole AI environment. And uh, I feel like there's a there's sort of a struggle there that they're a balance at least that they're trying to achieve, and I'm not sure um, how well they're doing it. Well, the the sense I get is that Google has put a lot of work into uh, the accuracy of their models. Um, mm. uh, you know, they're nowhere near. Uh, you know, they're they're they still hallucinate and they still have a lot of problems, of course. For sure. Um, but they have a lot of work that 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 they're putting in to try and make and, and to try to make those models. Um, uh, a little better, and that—that's actually what maybe has hurt them a little bit, because it also makes those models a little more boring. Whereas right. you know, OpenAI, they don't have this sort of legacy brand and all the rest of it, the 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 search expectations, and they can be a little more kind of free and easy, say with the early editions mm-hmm. of GPT. You actually even see this with 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 the GPT models, you know, GPT four and so on, becoming a little more boring and a little more accurate over time, from release to release to release. Mm, yeah, I think I have noticed that. We're all on. Yeah. 
Although sometimes I ask it to spice things up a bit, so it's hard to tell. Um, okay, so one more thing I wanted to ask you about in terms of products and things that have emerged in the last few months. Uh, actually, this one's fairly recent. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Semaphore Signals. I am. Yeah, so I really wanted to get your take on this because um, my view is that this seems like the first in a new era of, of applying generative AI to content in that it looks like they've really thought about it and sort of figured out a human in the loop and sort of correct way to apply the technology um, while still taking advantage of some of the inherent abilities of gen uh, gen uh, generative AI, with which is like, uh, in this case, language, right? So it's uh, supposedly uh, scanning things on all kinds of languages to bring good information to their journalists, something that was probably certainly possible before, but you needed to be a little more deliberate and much more, uh, it was much harder in, in general. Um, so I'd love to get your take on what this represents and whether or not you think it might be pointing the way to uh, better implementations of journalism and news production, or sorry, yeah. generative AI in news production. Yeah, I, I think there's other examples um, of this as well. I mean, this is generally about, you know, using um, large language models for news gathering versus mm. for generating, right? And so everybody looks right, right. at you know, generative AI, you know, the, the writing of articles or the writing of summaries or the production of images or videos, whatever, that gets all the attention. But then there's this other huge realm of opportunity for, for, um, for journalism, which is these tools can read. They mm -hmm. can read en enormous amounts of text and they can actually now look at images and pretty soon look at video. And analyze that and describe that and summarize that and reduce that. Um, and there's some very, very interesting examples um, uh, in their early stages uh, that I, I got a, an opportunity to work with last year uh, that, that do these, these kind of things. There's one in particular um, uh, th th that's being built um, by a, a, a publisher in Colombia called Question Publica. Uh, and they've built nice. this very, very interesting um, system using a fine-tuned LLM um, in which they they have a big repository of structured data about essentially the elites in Colombian society. And they have this tool where they can they can read that with the LL, with the LLM in response to new news. So some development happens in the news, and they can basically put that development, that that new news uh, into their system. The system has read all of this vast amount of structured information they have about all of Colombian society, basically, you know, who's who's on whose board and who went to school with who and who's married to who and all this stuff. And they can basically interpret the new news in the context of that complex information and produce an analysis. Right. And that's right. that's an example of the use. That, that's an example of the use of of these tools to read and contextualize and to analyze and, and kind of reduce. And, and that doesn't need to stop um, uh, at any level. You know, you could, you could imagine a situation quite easily, um, you know, in, in, in which everything that's available in public, every piece of text, every piece of audio, every piece of video uh, is, is analyzed and, and, and reduced that way. And in fact, you don't really have to imagine it because that's kind of what generative search um, is, right. right? I mean, Google are indexing and, 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 uh, you know, reading and incorporating all of this um, information. So that's that's a you know 
th th that's something I think, you know, talking earlier about this sort of longer term potential for journalism to be fundamentally restructured, uh, you know, in, in a few years because of this, this is one way. And this is one way that might be quite positive. Uh, you know, I, I mean, a, a, an analogy here might be, um, you know, what would you do if you had infinite reporters? You know, if, if, mm. if your news organization had enough reporters that they could read every single, you know, court appearance and read every single press release and transcript and on and on and on. And, you know, what would you do with that? Uh, right. Mm. And that's kind of the question, it, it, uh, you know, is, it, you know, is, is there a form of journalism um, that, that can basically use this to dramatically expand what can be reported on or even what could be considered news, right? There's huge areas of our society that is really, it's not news because it's not feasible to, for it to be news, mm. but, but that might be different now. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, well, we're talking a lot about these sort of bigger fundamental reshapings and, and what newsrooms can do. I'd love to bring things back to the ground level. What advice would you have here for journalists sort of talking about individual reporters and editors here who are just taking their first steps in AI? What, what advice do you have for them? Yeah, so the, there's a, um, a body of work that I, um, I'm ramping up on for the latter part of the year that's, that's focused uh, very much on this. Um, and, and it's essentially um, about the, the nitty gritty details of, you know, of, of, of a newsroom building this into their day-to-day -day operations. Mm. Um, and, I, and I think um, the, the first thing at the very earliest stage, the first thing to do is to engage with the tools and especially mm. to engage with large language models. You know, th these are not things that you can learn about by reading. There's no, you know, best practices. Although there's, there's a million and one people on social media who will, you know, sell you a PDF about the 10 magic prompts that will save <laughs> your life. GPT cheat sheet. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's just no substitute for getting your, your fingernails dirty and just sitting down and, and doing it yourself. Mm. Um, and, and not just sort of doing it in terms of playing, although that's important, um, but doing it in terms of actual problems that you actually have in the newsroom. And, there's a long, you know, just sit down for 30 minutes and you'll have a long, long list of these. Um, play a little bit with the tools and you'll have an even longer list of the things that you might be able to do with it and pick one and solve it and then pick another mm. one and solve that. And, and I think just, just that act of engagement is critical. Um, more specifically, I, I think that, you know, if you look at what will last from the present era of our, our kind of our nascent steps into you know, AI driven journalism, you know, what will last, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, uh, however far in the future, I think that one of the things that will last, uh, is prompting. Mm, and I think, I think there's a, there's a key moment that we're in right now, um, where a lot of prompts, um, are disappearing behind buttons on user yeah. interfaces. And that's a problem, uh, for prompts that do journalistic tasks, because if you're outsourcing the prompt, for example, to a product team or to an engineering team or whatever it is, you're outsourcing the editorial intent and and the editorial quality of the results at some level that mm. you know, that come from that prompt. And so I think I think uh, taking prompting very seriously, uh, working hard at it, learning about the different techniques, uh, learning how to define tasks and how to define quality criteria 
for tasks, how to evaluate tasks, how to iterate on prompts against quality criteria. All of these things, you know, th- these are things mm-hmm. that engaging with those and doing those for real projects uh, is a real way forward. And you can do that, you know, as a small news organization, you can do that and simultaneously, uh, you know, create uh, substantial productivity gains um, all at the same time. You know, this is these are not things that are going to take, um, uh, you know, a lot of technical skills or years and years and years or millions and millions of dollars to do. These are things that that non-technical people, um, you know, with, I don't know, four, eight hours a week or something uh, with a relatively tiny budget uh, can do just as easily as anybody else. So that's how I'd start. Um, There's a little bit more that goes on, I think, to build these tools, especially in kind of mid-sized or larger newsrooms, to build these tools into routine production. Uh, It's it's a little more complex to do that in routine uh, everyday publishing in a mid-sized or large organization. Uh, It's a little more complicated than just sitting down at a chat GPT interface. Um, And so I think there's 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 a set of of additional, especially when you get into some of the more advanced, um, uh, uh, you know, projects and possibilities. Um, and that includes infrastructure. I think there's there's requirements uh, that once you sort of develop these and get more sophisticated, um, there's there's things that, that you kind of quite soon see that you need in a content management system, for example, mm-hmm. or even in a serving system, uh, you know, when, for example, if you can produce you know, five or 10 different variations on a piece of content, you need to be able to put the right piece of content in front of the right user at the right time. So things like segmenting your audience and being able to serve different pieces of content to different segments of audience, these things take on a kind of renewed uh, importance. Um, so there's like this this sort of chain of steps. Uh, but that that lo- those low parts of the chain, those early opportunities, they're basically accessible to anybody. That's interesting. There's a lot of things I could um, touch on there, but the thing that uh, I find very interesting is the idea that abstracting the prompt away entirely is a bad idea because uh, I do feel like a couple of uh, that feels correct to me. Like it feels that the medium, the the balance you want is to retain that editorial control, but at the same time steer it in some yeah. way. So I don't. I feel like. It's not the chat bots we have today or a generic chat GPT interface, but it's also not a single button. There's something in between where there is some level of iteration and steering on the, the editor at the editor level. Uh, but the tool itself has been built to make sure that uh, a, a certain uh, there, there's some guardrails on that result, uh, particularly with regard probably to hallucinations, but perhaps other things like the topic, et cetera. Yeah, I, I think there's there's a long list of reasons why prompting should be an editorial task. Mm. Um, so so definitely, um, you know, having having control over quality and all that, the, the kind of the obvious reasons are there. But there's also like longer term reasons. Um, you know, a big one is is we don't know where these models are going to go or the uses that that we're going to be able to put them to. But to have agency, you know, to have kind of control over that, you know, we're going to have to, we're going to have to know how to prompt them, right? We're, it, it, it's mm, not, yeah. it's not going to be a good situation if you sort of default to pushing a button and editing the results, and then at some point, two or five or ten years in the future, 
you suddenly realize that you've it's passed you by. You no longer have the ability mm. um, or the sophistication with the control of these models to well, take I also feel advantage like, of them. Then, I feel then like, you lost yeah. that. You don't get that back. You know? And I feel like journalists would are kind of probably, a lot of them anyway, probably naturally good at prompt engineering just because they, they're used to follow-up questions, getting at the heart of something and iterating essentially on a line of inquiry right. to, I, to I get the information they want. I agree 100%. I think it's, you know, and I've seen this again and again. I've worked with an awful lot of, of newsrooms of all sizes over the last year. And, uh, and I think the big barrier is actually a confidence barrier. It's, mm. you, know, you, you basically see this, uh, this pattern where people are initially hesitant. They initially have this sort of assumption that there's some kind of a, a technical task and they look for technical, they, they try to mimic a coder basically. Right. And then when they realize there's some, there's a point where a light bulb goes off where they realize what they're dealing with. They, they start to interact, you know, as a, as a, uh, almost as a person rather than as a, as a thing. Um, and that, you know, and, and they become confident. They, they learn to control the, the, the model and the output and they can see the cause and effect. And, and it's all through language, which they're, you know, usually, uh, very, very skilled at, uh, to start with. And so I, I just see that confidence as being the blocker, not the skills, not the budget, you know, not yeah. even the time, uh, but the confidence. Well, let me ask you about another potential blocker, which is what I would call like the stigma of using AI, particularly in journalism. And so my, my sense is that from people that I talk to, various editors, journalists, there's still a certain amount of skepticism about its overall value. And I, I think that's waned over time as, as sort of chat GPT has become more part of just culture. But there there is some some not just fear, but uh, scorn a little bit, maybe for lack of a better word, on Oh, maybe I don't know where it really comes from, whether they think it's going to take jobs or it's taking jobs or it's just cheapening what journalists do in some way. And it's probably partly because of some of those cases we talked about. But um, what can be done about that? Um, or is that even just is that even the right question? Maybe this is healthy. I don't know. But what I also want to just get what, what your sense is, is that skepticism that sort of going away? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, one of the biggest surprises that that I've had in the last year, year and a half uh, with with these tools is how little of that I've seen. Like there's definitely hmm. some of it, right? But um, given the stage that we're at with this, how early uh, we are uh, with this, um, and given how fundamentally it touches, you know, a lot of what's pretty core to journalism, you know, writing, uh, for example, um, given all that, I, I would have expected a much greater backlash against it. Um, and And hmm. I look at, you know, social media and sort of the tech clash against, uh, you know, the search and social giants and so on uh, as an example of that. But I haven't seen that. I, I see like little bits here and there and like individuals and all that. But I've been really surprised at how, you know, basically optimistic um, uh, many newsrooms are. I mean, I know, I, you know, I have to ad admit here that I'm seeing a very sort of um, carefully chosen yeah. slice of the news industry. <laughs> so if they're talking to me, they're probably... Uh, pretty AI forward to start with, uh, but even so, you know, inside those newsrooms, um, it's uh, you know, it's, it's like this is a new era, and I want to be involved. How do I do that? You know, that's the that's the tone. Um, I, I see that more. You know, I work mostly with newsrooms in um, in in Europe, in the Nordic countries, and so on, and I see that more there. I think it's maybe. Mm -hmm. um, that that optimism is maybe a little less in the U.S. Uh, for some reason that I can't quite put my finger on, um, uh, but certainly in the Nordic countries, uh, uh, they're very optimistic and and moving forward very confidently. 
And I also see the same in you know places like Germany and Austria and Switzerland. So while I have generally have more of a sort of, I would say somewhere between optimism and realism about the role of AI in, in journalism, uh, one thing I do kind of worry about almost on a philosophical level is as maybe certain rote exercises get taken over by AI, uh, what, to, to get to the sort of, what I worry about is sort of an atrophying of certain muscles. And the question that I sort of come to in, in a pragmatic way is like, what are the interns going to do? You know, so like, what is that something we should worry about? I mean, again, I sometimes I think about this optimistically. It's like, well, typing and typewriters and certain line taping stuff that went away and all those jobs went away. But, you know, we, we still did stuff. Um, but is there a certain amount of muscle memory as, as things like copy editing, just for example, or even social media managers, um, you know, all these things that are starting to be taken over by generative AI, are we, are we losing something more? Or is this sort of a natural progression? What's yeah. I, I, well, so, so this is, this is kind of what I was referring to briefly earlier where, you know, if, if you don't, um, you know, if you don't engage and exercise and, and really get your fingernails dirty with, with these tools, mm. then at some future date, you know, you'll lose a certain amount of agency. And, and I think, you know, what, what you're speaking about there is, is losing, the current skills, you know, losing the current tasks and and the ability to do those well, and, and I think a lot of that is frankly not going to matter that much. Um, not sure. You know, I, I think mm. these tools are here to stay. They're on a trajectory that is improving their abilities very very quickly, um, and I think there's a lot of tasks that we can quite safely give up. But we have to think about this same question from the perspective of ten or twenty years from now. You know what are the tasks in this new world of of models of very powerful models and the control of those models? What are the tasks that we want to be that we want to have power over? Um, and I and this is why I keep coming back to prompting at some level. You know, understanding um, you know the you know how, how to control the models and feeling comfortable uh, controlling the models. And again, this is not a technical task. This is this is an engagement task. Um, uh, having that now will build whatever we're going to need. We don't know what it is, uh, five years, 10 years, 15, 20 Mm. years from now, staying engaged is that path to continued relevance, whether or not we, you know, we can copy edit or, or do things that interns do now. I don't Mm. think that's as, as, as important. There probably are some things that we would want to retain, uh, but but I think most of it is is probably going to change quite radically. Another place where you're seeing a similar set of questions being asked is uh, is education in academia, right? It's mm. like, well, what do we teach the kids now in a world where they're you know they're going to grow up with these tools? Right. And it is different. You don't you don't necessarily need to bring everything from the past forward, you know. So just to wrap things up, I know we've touched on the future a lot. and no one is a crystal ball, but I'd, I'd like to sort of ask a question that I often ask. Uh, of, of various folks I talked to, which is sort of projecting out to the five, 10 years we've been talking about. What what is journalism look like in sort of an AI mediated word world? But I think with you, like since we've touched on it a lot, like I, I, I one thing we didn't spend a ton of time talking about was news consumption. And I know you've written about Artifact and I, I used to write about it too. And I know it's no longer with us, but that idea of a more malleable reader experience 
whether that's fueled by generative search or whatever Apple's got in store. And like, certainly as, as these kind of AI powered assistants become more common, bringing news to us in whatever format that we can kind of think of, um, what, what does journalism look like in a world like that? You know, what are the atoms of it? Is storytelling still relatively the same? Um, what, what sort of, uh, world is it where, AI is touching all parts of the process, but particularly the reaching the audience side. What do you think? Yeah, on, on the consumption side, you know, with Artifact and, and uh, you know, which is gone now and, and other um, examples, um, you know, I think the fundamental thing goes back to that difference between or that separation between the semantic information and the way that it's expressed. And I think the way that it's expressed is under the control of the audience, from now on, basically, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's going to take a little while to get there, but essentially audiences are going to control how they consume information. They're going, they're going to control every last little aspect of that. You know, if they want it as, as, you know, some kind of video or, you know, whatever it is, they're going to, they're going to get that. Artifact was a baby step in that direction, but there's many others. Generative search itself is, is an example. Um, so that, that core difference is, is behind that. So then you got to ask, I think, well, what what's fundamental and what's permanent about that semantic information? There's a whole business model question about how you pay for collecting it, which is a little separate here. But what is it like? What another way to think about it is what should a newsroom produce ten years from now, right? Hmm. And, and I think there's some fundamentals there that we can rely on. I think um, I think story is a fundamental. I think um, story is kind of baked into uh, the psychology and even the biology of being human. I think it's a fundamental um, in, in, you know, to, you know, at its very basis, it's a fundamental data structure that we use to organize our worlds. Uh, so I don't think story is going away. I think it'll still be here 10,000 right. years from now. Uh, uh, you know, that, that, that that's not going to be um, something that's changing. Um, I, I think there are um, things that we need to do around uh, separating uh, news, and by news I mean event-driven information, mm-hmm. um, as, as distinct from kind of knowledge graphs, which are more kind of the nouns of the worlds and how they relate. Uh, I think there are things that we need to do uh, with regard to um, to data structures, even or ways to organize uh, that information. Um, uh, th- th- this might be things like uh, you know breaking things down into their their smallest facts. Um, right. And being able to sort of validate those or have a process, probably machine uh, aided, uh, to to work with those kind of small units. Um, uh, I've, I've done a lot of work in the past with structured forms of journalism. Um, it's a little different now in a large language model environment, but some kind of an idea for what those kind of units are, um, much smaller than an article. Uh, uh, you know, maybe they're their events, maybe their facts, maybe their uh, their various interpretations. I, I think there's a lot of work still to be done in those. Um, those will probably be something like the the output of newsrooms uh, at some point in the future. You know, there's no point in producing your news output as an article if that article is mostly going to be read by a machine to create an experience for a consumer. You know, there mm. there, there are probably other ways to provide richer outputs. Uh, but what those are, I think we still have a lot of work to do to figure out that. David, what is the one thing everyone in the media business or in journalism should know about generative AI? 
I think the the one thing that I that I'd reinforce is that this this is not um, this is not like the old school AI, which was about data science and mm-hmm. you know deeply technical machine learning and data warehouses and and all of that stuff. Um, this is it. This is and and that was that was very inaccessible. There was a kind of a priesthood right. that kind of ran that and all that. This new era that we're in is very different, and it's open to everybody. And I really mean everybody. Um, mm. You know, you, you can use ChatGPT for free. You can pay twenty dollars a month and get the best of it. Uh, these new Google tools. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things happening with Google's Gemini uh, one point five model. Um, uh, they're they're really open ended at the moment in the possibilities, uh, but they're easy to 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 um, to get your hands on and to. To, to actually use, um, no matter what your technical skills are, your budget or, or, uh, or whatnot. So, so that's the biggest thing is, is that this is open to you. Um, th- you know, there is, there is no reason at all that you, everyone listening, uh, cannot use this to automate, uh, tasks that, that, that you do every day or, or, um, that, that, that are important to your newsroom. Um, all you need to do is sit down, think through the task, Get familiar with the tool. Learn how to prompt a little bit, iterate, and and and, and it will happen. Um, get through that confidence barrier, and and this whole new world will open up to you. David, this has been great. Thank you so much for the conversation. You're very welcome. Thank you. You have been listening to the Media Copilot. Please visit us at mediacopilot.ai to subscribe to our newsletter and check out the classes that we offer to journalists, marketers, and content creators. You can also follow us on Twitter at The Media Copilot. Be seeing you in the future.